How are we doing? We've, we've just, you know, we've all made it to almost June. We're all right. Everything's good, right? Everything, everybody okay? I'm not, like, you guys are, like, looking at me like. <laughs> okay. Well, what we've been doing is we've been in the book of Second Thessalonians for the last uh, couple weeks. Uh, Christian kind of kicked us off after we went through First Thessalonians. And we've, uh, we're kind of to the what is really, in, in a lot of ways, the heart of the letter of what Paul was, was going to be intending to write to this particular group of people about. Now, what's so cool about what Christian did the last two weeks was, is he grabbed this reality, and I would say it this way, he grabbed a reality of not only who they were in Christ, and who they were in Christ is that they were made worthy by the work of Jesus, Positionally, where they stood in light of being in Christ, they were made worthy. But the part of this particular text was, is how now these groups of people begin to walk worthily, how they begin to live out their identity as followers of Jesus. And this is the way I would put it. What Paul was telling them is that they were the real deal. They were authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And so he was thankful. He gave this prayer all about it. He was excited about who they were. But the question in the back of our head has to be, why in the world were they worried that they were even authentic followers of Jesus Christ? Now, anybody that, again, knows me, I've said this before, I'm a former youth pastor, so you're going to get a little bit of a youth pastor kind of vision of this particular text today. Because what I did was, is I came home to my kiddos, and I was having to explain to one of them how this text worked, and he goes, can you put this on paper? So here's kind of what the paper looked like that I did on, right? So you're going to get, just so you know, I'm an, I'm an amazing graphic artist, as you can already tell. So if you, if you need me to do any work for you afterwards, I'm totally available. I'm available about 10 hours a week, so just let me know. I'll, I'll give you my, my card. But in this, there was this group of people, and this is the way that I would say it. It was this group of people in Thessalonica, and Paul was. He was coming to them, and he was telling them that they're the real deal. The problem that they were facing was is they were freaked out. And I use that word sincerely. My, my, one of my kids, when I was explaining it about it, the, my kid looked back at me and said, so what you're saying, Dad, is they were kind of freaked out. Yeah, they were freaked out because they were wondering something, and we'll get to it in just a second. Am I really an authentic follower of Jesus Christ? Now, we'll tell you why they thought maybe they weren't here in a second. But in chapter 1, what Paul was doing is he was bolstering this idea that you are the real deal. Now, later in chapter 3, though, we're going to come alongside of a group of people, man, they don't want to work. In other words, the information that they got in chapter 2, they said to themselves, well, cool, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to mooch off the rest of the church. I'm going to glide and just kind of have a good time. And so Paul in chapter 2 is not only trying to encourage one group of people, he was trying to comfort them, these group of people that were afflicted, but on the other side, the comfortable he was going to afflict. He was trying to do two different things with this particular text. So to kind of understand it, we have to understand kind of the two audiences that he was talking to at this particular point. On one end, this group of people that were freaked out, thinking that maybe they weren't followers of Jesus. And on this other side, it was a group of people that kind of took this idea that they were, that Paul's going to talk about, and then they decided they were just going to be idle. So that's where we leave them. And this is what I drew from my kids. You know, I said, well, what do you think that they were, what they were worried about? And one of my kids looks back at me and goes, I don't know. So if you're sitting there right now saying, I don't know, you're just like my kids. Now, 
Here's what he's gonna talk about. In verse one, if you've got your Bibles, you can look down in there. He said, this is what I'm gonna write to you about. It's concerning, he says, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember right, this coming word is very important. Christian kept emphasizing it, this idea of a parousia, the, the kingly return of him coming back to his people. And in this kingly return, he was gonna do something specific. It was that he was gonna gather together to him his particular people. That's what he's talking about in verse one. This parousia, Jesus coming back, and then him gathering his people to himself. Now we find that, like I said, in 1 Thessalonians 4, because it talks about the Lord himself, right, will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the Christ and dead, uh, or the dead in Christ will rise first, verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him. That's the word we kind of get the, this, this idea of rapture from that we kind of talked about, maybe loaded that word a little too much, with them in the clouds to meet, in the, uh, with, meet the Lord in the air so we may always be with him. So he's somewhere in there, he's wanting them to draw back in their memory bank and remember, and that's even what he does in verse five. He says to him, don't you remember? Don't you remember these things? I told you these things while I was with you. And so he's trying to, he's trying to stoke their memory. Now, the thing that he tells them, and here's the problem now he's going to tell them. The reason that one group of people was freaked out and one group of people suddenly started to mooch off everybody else was because he said, I don't want you to be quickly shaken in mind. In other words, they'd lost their heads. They kind of freaked out either by a spirit or a prophecy. In other words, a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that here's the key. The day of the Lord has come. In other words, to use the old euphemism of the late 90s and early 2000s, they thought they'd been left behind. Like that one? There's more where that came from. Just wait. Now, if you wonder why they were freaked out, a friend of mine once told me this story. His mom had heard this from somebody else, so she thought it would be a great joke to play on one of her kids that the rest of them had been raptured, but that one kid got left. So they took all their clothes and they took their shoes and piled their socks and underwear and pants and, and shirts and left them there. And the kid came in, found their clothes kind of laying there like suddenly they just sprung out of their shoes. And let me tell you something, if you do that, I will call child services on you. So <laughs> let me just clarify this. But my friend said, I was freaked out. He said, I honestly thought if this is really true and this has happened, that means I'm not a follower of Jesus. And again, here's the old euphemism, I've been left behind. So in this, just to be fair to him, Paul wasn't writing in this particular case like a textbook in which he was including the last chapter about last things. This was a letter. And this was a letter to a group of people that he adored passionately. And he was trying to help them understand something that was real, that was impacting them. And so he's coming to them with this particular reality. He says to them, you need to not listen to this, this prophecy, this teaching, this letter, whatever it was that came to them that says that the day of the Lord has come. That's not the case. Now we kind of get this idea of the day of the Lord just to kind of remember Bob uh, Krychek, he kind of, he taught this text and just gave us this big understanding of the day of the Lord. But he, when we talk about the day of the Lord concerning times and seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to write to you for you yourselves are fully aware. Here's the thing. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, meaning they had thought to themselves that somehow the, that the Lord had come and like a thief in the night, they had missed it. 
And this is where this particular group of people stood. So how's he gonna help them? That's the question. Well, the next section, he says, let no one deceive you. And let me just say this off the front end. I think when we look at things like last things or eschatology or whatever you wanna call it about how we study about the second coming of Jesus Christ, I think there is so much information out there and some of it is good, but let me just tell you this, be careful, a lot of it is extremely bad. We're gonna talk more about this next week on kind of this idea of what do we need to do with information like this. But he's saying to them, there is a deception that came into their thinking that when we understand about the end times, we have to be careful because this deception, his point is, it can lead you astray. Now, in this particular case, he then says to them, that day's not going to come unless. I love that term. He was saying to them, there's something that has to take place first before any of this is going to happen. And again, and you might have a little bit of a different view on this, which is fine. The Lord will help you understand more later, but I'm totally kidding. But there's just this side of it in which, no, he's saying there's something that has to happen first before any of that's going to take place. Well, what is it? Well, one of the things that we're going to learn about this is that he's going to say there's something that has to come first. And he, in your ESV Bibles, it calls it the rebellion. And it's this Greek word apostasia, which we get our, Greek, our word apostasy from. It's this idea of falling away. There's a falling away that's going to happen first. And it's connected to this idea of this guy called the man of lawlessness, if you remember right, Last week, Christian talked about this idea of Jesus coming, his apocalypse, his, this idea of apocalypsis or apocalypto, this one that's coming to reveal himself. Well, in the same way that King Jesus is going to be revealed, there's this other, let's just for right now call him a man, we'll put that in quotes, as this other one that's going to be revealed. Now, what's so interesting is that Paul is going to go out of his way to give us tons of information on this particular guy. In fact, what we learn about him is that he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. In other words, he's going to be revealed, and he, and I put that in quotes, is going to be this one that's going to stand in front of it and not only kind of put himself above, but the greater reality is that he's going to take his seat in the temple of God, and we'll talk about that next week, what that means, but proclaiming himself to be God. That's crazy but this revealing in some way is going to be something that's going to happen which we'll talk about here in a second that that is going to be able to take place skip forward to verse six and you know what is restraining him by the way i don't know I really don't. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. But this group of people, and I was just imagining this, like he says, hey, you know what I'm talking about. And there was probably some guy sitting in there going, do you remember what Paul was talking about? No, I missed that day. Dang it. I don't know what he's talking about. But he says there's this restrainer that he had been talking about so that he may be revealed, his point is, in his time. Which, by the way, anytime we talk about this idea of in his time or appointed, the one who is actually in control of that, we may not know who this restrainer is, but we know who's in control always, and that is God. Now, this restrainer, while in one end is going to restrain back apostasy and lawlessness, but already he says at work amongst you is going to actually be lawlessness. Now, what's lawlessness? 
Lawlessness is just this idea in which anytime I have the audacity to think that I am above the law or I can make my own law, I am saying to the world, in essence, I'm God. I get to decide right and wrong. I get to be the captain of my ship. I get to decide how things work. And his whole point is, is that is going to become the rhythm of people at this particular time when things take place. And we'll talk about that more in a second. But only he who now restrains it at some point is going to get out of the way. And then comes the lawlessness. And here's the thing, apocalypto or apocalyptic. He will be revealed to the world. Now, real quickly, I know there are different people that have different views of this. Some think you're not going to be here because you're going to be raptured before this guy comes. Others of you think that this has already taken place and there's everything in between. The greatest news in the world is, is that while we don't understand everything, we understand what's most important, which is this. While we're not sure when he's going to, Jesus Christ will return. Does everybody understand that? There's a grander reality. We know a lot of things and we share so many things in common. So if right now you're sitting here going, oh, that's, that's maybe how I learned it differently, you know, at the particular church I went to. That's okay, and we're going to talk about why that's okay next week. But in this particular case, looking at it, just kind of following the text a little bit, this one's going to be revealed, and this coming of the lawless one, look at this, is by the activity of who? Okay, serious. Now, one time a guy was telling me, he's like, man, when this lawless one comes, you just know he's going to probably, you know, have a black hat and black boots and black pants and black guns. And he's going to be this guy with a black mask. And he's going to have a voice that sounds like this, you know. But listen to me. In actuality, this lawless one probably is going to be very similar to in 2 Corinthians, this one who's called Satan, who disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. So he's not going to come talking like this, you know. That's not how he's going to come. He's going to come, and in so many ways, people, and the idea that we're going to talk about is, is that he's going to do signs, and he's going to do wonders. He's going to do all kinds of different things. And with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. In other words, he is coming, and there's going to be a deception that's going to take place at this particular time. God, in fact, is going to come along and this groups of people that decide to go down this path, as he says in here, it's going to give them a strong delusion so that they can go after what is false. His point is, kind of like in Romans 1, is he just gives them over. If this is what you're after, I will give you over. I will let you keep going down this particular path in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We're going to talk about this next week is this group is not talking about the world. I actually believe this is, could ha this is going to happen inside of the church, and we'll talk about more what that means. But here's the key. The man of lawlessness, the Lord Jesus, look at that term, will kill him with the breath of his mouth. What's that like? In some way now, Jesus Christ is going to come back and Paul's climactic statement in, verse, in chapter two is, is that even though it's gonna seem like maybe King Jesus isn't winning and even though even right now it may feel like King Jesus isn't winning, let me just tell you this. 
Another thing that all of us who are followers of Jesus agree is that King Jesus wins. So he is returning. He will win. We may not know when. We may not know how. We may not know what. But one of the things that we hold for confident and for sure is that King Jesus will return and he will win. And it won't just be any kind of a win. Anything that stood against him, it's just the breath of his mouth, and not because he has bad breath, by the way. Just the breath of his mouth comes and absolutely destroys not only evil one, or this, this lawless one, but look at this, to bring to nothing by the appearance of coming. In other words, all those that bent the knee, all these works that he's done, in other words, Jesus will just absolutely do away with it. Now, that's the gist of this text. Now, what I want to do now is, is I want to ask this big question after walking you through it. to kind of gave you the big picture of what we're talking about here. But now what I want to do is, is I just want to walk you through this particular text and ask this particular question, which is, what can we learn from 2 Corinthians that will help us keep our, our heads, that will help us stay faithful, displaying Christ well? It's kind of the way we tend to put it around here. As we await, not just kind of sitting around doing nothing, but as we wait, as we're actively waiting for the second coming of Christ. Okay, so that's the question that I want to answer this morning in just a little bit of a time that I have left. Now, one of the things, if you got your Bibles and we, and we look down into verse 2, is that should happen is, is that these people were asking this question about the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, all these different things you can see in verse 2 about the gathering. And what they were saying to themselves is, we must not be God's people if we're suffering. Or they were saying to themselves, I don't have to kind of work anymore for a living because Jesus Christ has already come. Now, what you should instantly think in your head is, is that seems illogical. And by the way, if Paul were here today, I think he would look at you and say, you know what? That should seem illogical. So if that's where your mind is going, that's exactly what Paul is trying to talk about in this particular case. Now, there's two things in this text, though, that caught my attention that I just kind of want to draw us to as we kind of look at a little bit. One of the things that I think is so interesting is the extensiveness of which he talks about, especially the man of lawlessness. On so many levels, as he kind of walks down through, he, he talks about this idea of not only the man of lawlessness, he talks about a rebellion, he talks about a falling away, he talks about him sitting in the temple of God, he talks about the power and the person restraining him, he talks about this mystery of lawlessness, these same satanic empowered signs, and all these different realities of, that are going to bring about a divine deluding, and then finally, Jesus is going to come and he's going to slay this fraud Messiah in front of all of them, and he's going to judge unbelievers, he's going to bring all things to a good end. Now, that seems strange to me the first time I looked at it, because, like, why did he say all that stuff if all he wanted to say to this group of people when they came to him and said, is the day already come? He could have just written back, no. Uh-uh. But don't forget this. He wasn't just trying to give them an answer. He was trying to help them think through the deception. He wasn't going to give them everything. And in fact, one of the things that hit me when I was also studying this that caught my attention is that we're kind of left with a lot of unanswered questions. So on one level, he tells us a lot, but here's some of the things that I wrote down. What's the rebellion or the apostasy? I don't know. Who's the man of lawlessness? I don't know. 
What temple will the man of lawlessness sit in? Well, when I was growing up, one person said the temple was going to be in Jerusalem. One person said the temple, if you were Catholic, they thought it was going to be in Geneva. Those that were in Geneva thought it was in Rome. One group of people that I kind of lived around in Wyoming thought that he was going to come back in Salt Lake City. And for all I know, maybe he comes back to Simi Valley. No. We sit at the foot of the Reagan Library. But if you count it out, Ronald Wilson Reagan is 666. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Totally kidding. But I haven't asked him into my heart. Anyway, what or who is restraining the man of lawlessness's appearance? What's the mystery of lawlessness even? What's the deception and delusion? In other words, that means on the one hand, he says like in a cool way, way more than maybe I kind of thought he would. But on the other hand, man, I have all kinds of questions that I would love to get. In fact, right in the middle of his teaching, you can look down at that in verse 5. He even says that. Do you remember when I was still with you, I, I told you these things, meaning we're never going to have that information until Jesus returns. And it's so funny because as I read commentary after commentary and commentary, they would say, you know, we don't know, but here's what we think. And at the end of it, everybody was thinking a myriad of things, not to confuse us, but we're trying to answer something that for whatever reason, God has chosen not to reveal to us. And we have to be so careful. If God has chosen not to reveal something to us, then we shouldn't try to add the answer in because that's making ourselves God. We think we know the answer. Sometimes you just have to step back and we'll talk about it more next week and just let it be. So in this text, I think in this practical passage, he was, he was trying to help them get their heads about him. So he was gonna answer, look, Jesus hasn't come back yet. He wanted them to know that. But now also he was just going to fill them with all kinds of information as a way to not only kill the plant, but you know this, when you have a weed in your yard, you don't want to just kill the top of it. You have to pull out the what? The root. And so he's going to give them even more information to begin to pull that particular root out. So because kind of their seeming failure, that's kind of the idea here, because of what's going on, he's just going to say to them, here's kind of some more information that you need to know. Now, it's not only this idea now of this one who's, who's kind of the coming back and we, we're kind of now filling the gaps, but look at verse two. Let me show you some of the, else of the things that are kind of going on here, or excuse me, verse three, to kind of help us understand what's going on. He says in there, let no one deceive you in any way. That's the idea. They were being deceived. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So what's this rebellion? Well, let me just say this. From my perspective, this rebellion is way more than just a group of people that are walking kind of in and amongst Christians and the normal ups and downs and days in and days out reality of struggling to, to keep our first lug, of struggling not to fall away. That's not what I think he's talking about here. When you read this particular text, and especially when we start drifting into like Matthew 24, which there's a lot of words and verbiage that are shared between these two texts, it doesn't appear here that he's talking about just kind of the normal way of life. Instead, what he's talking here is there's coming a time in which there's something that is going to be very identified, very epic, very huge in the way that it's carried out. And it's going to happen in some way, we find out when we get down to verses 8 and 9, at this time in which Jesus Christ also returns. 
in some ways it's gonna be utterly sweeping. I think it's gonna be catastrophic on another level. There's something going on inside of this text that we're, again, not sure about aspects of it, but there does seem to be between Matthew 24 and between this particular text, it's gonna be huge. In fact, when we talk about this rebellion or this apostasy, this falling away, Jesus, look what he, look what he says about it, just so we can kind of get this idea. Verse nine, he says, then, so this is sometime after this thing he calls birth pangs have started, They'll deliver you up to tribulation. They'll put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations. This is how huge it's gotten. For my name's sake, it sounds like in some ways now, the Great Commission in some ways is coming to this beautiful conclusion. And then well along in church history, we see this many will fall away, betray one another, hate one another. Of course, this happens. And again, I get it all throughout history, but this seems to be something that's so huge. It's a, a gathering a storm. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. If I'm behind, aren't I? No, no, I'm okay. Here we go. You should have said I'm fine. And many false prophets will lead and read many astray. And because, look at here's our word, lawlessness, there's our word, will be increased. Here's the other part of it. The love of many will grow cold. He's telling us something about this. This lawlessness has this tendency now to make the love of many grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's talking about something big here. There's some of these group of people that make it to the very end. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Not just a tiny part of the world. Throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And Paul's point is, that's not happened yet. That hasn't taken place as his point. The rebellion, the apostasy that he's talking about that has to come first is huge. It's decisive. It's something in which all the nations, according to Matthew 24, are going to have a hatred towards the church from the outside. But it's not just a hatred from the outside. And I think this is where we have to be careful as followers of Jesus. But there's a love that grows cold from the inside. See, whenever we sometimes talk about end times, I feel like we're always looking out there. Man, I tell you what, it's the Chinese government, it's the Russian government, it's maybe our own government. What's going on out there? But when you read this text, Paul is very concerned with us. He's concerned with our love growing cold. And I would even say this, to all of you that like charts and graphs and dots to connect and all the other things in between, be so careful in your connecting of all those dots all over the place that your love doesn't grow cold. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying to them, be careful. And there's no doubt John talks about this idea of menti antichrist that are gonna come but I really do think at some point, kind of a, almost a Luke 21 standpoint, there's gonna come this time where now we're gonna have to straighten up and raise our heads because we see our redemption drawing near. And he's writing this to kind of just tell them over and over and over again. On one hand, those of you that are freaked out, wondering if you're even a follower of Jesus because you're suffering, he's letting them know, yes, you are. But on the other side, those that are idle, he's warning them that this idleness that you're going down, this pursuit of your own love and your own passions and mooching off everybody is a way that's gonna slowly cause your heart to grow cold. And I even think he's arguing it sets you up to be deceived by this lawless one that's going to come at one point. 
So to one side, he's encouraging. To the other side, he's warning. But here's the second event. Look down in verse three again. So he says, let not any of you deceive you for that day will not come unless one, the rebellion comes first. And then he uses this Greek conjunction, right? A conjunction is just conjunction, junction. What's your function, right? He's connecting two thoughts together. How, some of the kids out there are probably like, what's that? <laughs> How cool was Schoolhouse Rock? Mm-hmm. Yep, as soon as they took Schoolhouse Rock off of Cartoon Day, our nation went terrible. <laughs> anyway, and he's connecting these two ideas together. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now he's going to go and he's going to give us all kinds of information But why would Paul, here's the question I was asking in my own mind. If he's trying to encourage these people and build them up, I understand the first part for them to know, okay, cool, like you haven't come back yet. But on the other side, and this is where I think it's important, I think he's gonna give so much information about the man of lawlessness because he wants them to be aware potentially that they could be the generation that faces this particular one. Now again, I know that flies in the face of different theological views, but let me just say this. I think this is what he's doing here. The most natural assumption, I think, is that he wants them to recognize him if he appears, or even John, the little a antichrist, even if these ones appear in front of you. But the point of this passage is, is I don't think that Christians have gone to heaven at this point. I think the point of this particular passage is we need to be aware, be aware when he comes. So what are the things that we see about him? And let me, let me just give you a few of the different things that I see that we, that we kind of see about him. Here's the first one. I believe this particular person, he is a literal man. He's human. There's just too many identifiers within this particular text that seem to play into, and again, you can disagree with me, but it's this idea, I don't think it's an angel, I don't think it's a demon, I don't think it's a series of leaders, I don't think it's a a spiritual force or or maybe even an atmosphere or an ideology that's talking about here. There seems to be the way that Paul sees this person is not just metaphorically a person, but it seems to be this is really a man. He's at his core. If you look down inside of verse three, he's a man of lawlessness. He considers himself completely above the law of God. He's lawlessness. And from the standpoint of he he himself in his own mind is subject to no one's law. He's subject to no lawgiver. Another part that when you kind of look down there that this lawlessness eventually leads him to the point to claim himself even to be God. This idea then of even setting himself up as worship and I think in an interesting way, what he's saying is, is I know there's, there's this Messiah coming, but I'm the true Messiah, and he claims himself to be God when you look down into verse four. That's one of the things that he's identifying. Again, there can be all kinds of mystery to that, but this is what Paul says about this particular person. Not only that, but also if you look down in verse three, he is born for destruction. Don't miss that. Another place that's talked about is the person Judas, who was also a person born for destruction. 
The DNA of this particular one is the same exact DNA of Satan, that he is this one of perdition, this one who at the outcome, that no matter how good he looks or how he portrays himself to the world, this particular person will be destroyed by Christ. He has no future, even though he is lawless, even though he thinks he has it all together, his outcome will be doom. Paul wants them to know that. The other part about it is, we talked about that, is he comes by the power of Satan. We know that about him as well. That behind him, in some particular way, we see in verse 9, is Satan is empowering him. You even see this with all kinds of, he says, all power down in verse 9. He says, signs and wonders in verse 9 for the purpose of doing something, which is to deceive. And not just only to deceive, Jesus even talks about the potential of even wanting to deceive the elect, even though he won't be able to. Therefore, this man, what he is, when you look down in verse 10, he's this one who comes with all wickedness. He's this one that comes who's destined for perishing. But I would argue, especially when we like look at Matthew 24, there's other aspects that we need to get of this. Jesus said there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. In other words, it is going to be epic and huge. No, it never will be, he says. Verse 24, for false Christ prophets will be arising and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible. Here's the thing, even the elect, but look at verse 26. So if they say to you, look, he, and I think this is a one person reality, is in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from east to west and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, at the close of this climactic period of lostness, this great deception, this literal person who is enthroned and acting as a pseudo-Christ, Christ will come in as lightning from horizon to horizon, and the parallel will absolutely give way because that man will not stand at all because by the breath of his mouth, he will be destroyed. And he wants these precious people to know it. They were in the midst of the Roman government, Nero, and even some of Domitian and these terrible rulers that were before them. What about them? And on down through time, we see these rise of leaders all the way maybe into our time where we see Hitler. And who knows what's still to come, but his point is, is that all these leaders that have risen up, these antichrists that might start to look like this very one who's coming one day, people should have known that Adolf Hitler could not succeed because anyone who tries to take the place of God will be destroyed. And if you don't believe me, read the book of Daniel and about Nebuchadnezzar. He thought the same thing, and God belittled him in the good sense of the word. In fact, I think Christians have terrible good news the way that we're fearful about what leaders rise to power. Think about what we're telling people. If we don't get the right president, if we don't get the right governor, if we don't get the right sheriff, our whole world is gonna fall apart. That's not good news. Our destiny is not banked upon which leader rises or falls in the giant scheme of things. 
Our destiny is banked by the sovereign God who spoke the whole world into existence and nothing occurs outside of his sovereign purview. Our king sits enthroned above all with Jesus having all authority on heaven and on earth. Oh, people of God. Don't fear what they talked about in the Old Testament is just a bunch of grasshoppers. Our God reigns. And in this text right here, I don't care where you sit on the spectrum of end times things, we can all as God's people rejoice. There ain't no one who's going to defeat our God because if God is for us, who can be against us? None. This one God that we're talking about who reigns and rules, he's the one who controls time. He's the one who raises and falls powers. He's the one in the end who will be declared victorious. And Paul wants them to get this. He wanted to encourage them. But I think there's something else here that we need to see. He talks about this idea of the mystery of lawlessness. Now, what I think is not only that we need to believe that reality that I just screamed and yelled at you. I felt Southern Baptist right there. (laughs) God. with every head bowed and every eye closed. Nobody looking around. Nobody looking around your neighbor. (laughs) Watch out. I might go Pentecostal here in a second. (laughs) That's when everything will bust loose. But listen to me. So what do we do now? Well, if there is this lawlessness, this mystery of lawlessness that in many ways is connected to apostasy, which is connected to rebellion, which is connected to falling away, then I think Hebrews speaks to our time. And I think the thing that we need to be focused on way more than charts and graphs and even arguing about our different eschatological views, which you're going to learn next week, I think we ought to talk about these things. I'm tired of lazy people going, I don't know, I'm just pan-millennial. It all works out and it pans out in the end. But there's this side of it, no. Thank you for whoever laughed. There's this side of it that we we have to know we've got to wrestle with these things, but that can't supersede our wrestling with not growing cold. In fact, that was one of the warnings that Jesus gave to the church in Ephesus. Oh, church in Ephesus, you've done all kinds of good things. You've worked hard. You've kept out false teaching. In fact, I bet you their eschatology was right on. But he said, I have this against you. You've left your first love. See, the most important thing that we do to combat what is coming at us is to come alongside of one another, to work together and fan our love for God with everything that we are. We dive in, not just alone, but together inside of God's word. We ignite our hearts with flame as we come and we cry out before the throne room of God. We encourage one another, strengthen one another, confront one another. We dive into one another's life because all the way at the end of chapter four, Jesus is not gonna call us to understand all the different ways in which things might work out at the end. He's just gonna call us to be faithful. Just be faithful. Be like the virgins who are just faithful. 
Be like the one who received talents and used it like the king asked us to, faithful. That's what we need to spend most of our time on, and that is why we've got ourselves caught up in this idea of a discipleship pathway. We want to help Cornerstone to be that church that we may not be able to understand every little aspect of how things come together at end, but by damn, we are going to follow King Jesus. We're gonna, we're gonna seek to love him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and to love our neighbors, ourselves. We may not have it all figured out in the end. Oh, but I wanna be a church that when Jesus returns, he finds us faithful. Just doing what he asked us to do. Now here's what we're gonna do next week. We do a podcast every week. If you don't know that, you can go check it out. It's on, I don't know, all the different kind of podcast venues. We haven't made a huge deal about it because, well, we didn't know if we were any good or not. We still don't know if we're any good or not at it. Everybody's got a podcast now, so I guess we need to as well. But next week, actually, me and Spencer and Christian are going to come sit up in front of you, and we're going to talk through some of the dynamics of this text. But here's why. I love the fact that I go to a church that not all of us share the same exact view of last things. Now you might go, oh, no, I want us to be all on the same page. I don't. I actually like the fact that we push and rub in different ways because if Paul's major concern was deception, then I need other brothers and sisters in Christ who don't think like me to protect me from deception. And I already can tell because of some of the things I said, some of you are going to send me emails and let me know that I'm wrong. And by the way, that's a good thing. But here's the other thing that we're going to talk about next week. Those gaps that I talked about earlier are meant to be filled in. They're meant to be mystery. And wherever there's mystery, A.W. Tozer talked to us about, it brings humility, it brings a sense of awe and wonder. In other words, gaps that we don't know cause worship. I'm not God. And so next week, we're going to talk about just this reality of how do we work it through, but how do we help and protect one another from being deceived, number one, but also then on a second level, how do we use those places where we don't all come to the same conclusion, not as a point of arguing over pointless things, but as a point of drawing us to the throne room of God as a sense of worship, okay? So that's what we're going to do next week. You with me? Some of you are. All right, some of you are like, yeah, dude. And others of you, you gave me the golf clap, thank you. And then others that are very excited. Either way, let me just tell you this. God has ordained a time when King Jesus will come back. The Father knows. That's okay, you can clap for that. The Father knows, okay? That's the first thing. Nothing can thwart that time. We can't try to cajole the heart of God and say, God, what if I do this? Will you come back early? We're not going to do anything. He has set the time, and our God is in control of all things. And at some point, he is going to look at the sun 
And he's gonna say, that group of people that I gave you, that I adore and love and handed to you as your very own now to possess and love and make beautiful, he's gonna look at the son and say, go get them. And the son is going to come and he's not just gonna come and be like, hi guys. He is coming with all authority as the great king of kings and the Lord of lords, a proclamation of his greatness in front of all. And I am so thankful that right now, those of you who believe the spirit of God is welling up in your heart because we long to see the return of King Jesus. So in the name of the Father, no, you can clap a second. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, Cornerstone, God bless you as we live in the wonderful position of knowing King Jesus will return and King Jesus will win. And now all God's people clapped because that's what we do at Cornerstone.